Well, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to look at the first nine verses, and we're going to title the message, God is Faithful to Confirm You to the End. Let's pray first. Father, I just ask you, Lord, that you'll open our hearts and cause your word to have an effect on us, Lord, and that it'll be an effect that'll stay with us and cause us to draw near to you and uh, to uh, recognize your faithfulness, Lord, and, and have that cause us to cling tighter to you. And I thank you that you'll do that for us in the name of Jesus. Amen. First Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 1, it says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him and all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short or behind in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So I want to begin today, start look at the book of Corinthians, Lord willing. And, you know, a lot of times you can think, I really would have liked to have been a member of one of the early churches because, you know, they just had to have everything right, had to be on fire, had to have the Holy Spirit really working in their midst, which they did all that, but... Really, they didn't have their act together. A lot of the letters Paul's writing, he's commending them for some things, but in a lot of times he's having to work out problems that are coming on churches that have just been established by the apostles even. And that's what you have in 1 Corinthians. It's a church. We'll see it was started, founded, began by the apostle Paul. But in this letter, we're not going to get into it today, starting today, but he is mainly just dealing with problems. It's a letter of dealing with problems and issues that they're having in that church. And just to name a few of them, it gets into even chapter two. They have the worldly wisdom. He has to start dealing with the worldly wisdom of the philosophers and their speaking abilities. And because of that, they're questioning Paul, questioning his authority, his apostleship. He has to deal with immorality in the church, sexual sins, incest is going on, fornications taking place. And it was a widespread problem. He has to deal with lawsuits within the church. So you have members suing each other, taking them to secular law courts, and they apparently don't see anything wrong with that. Paul has to address that. He has to address the whole question of eating meat offered to idols in temples. So he's getting into the whole question of liberty and conscience. What can we or can we not do? Now, we may not be eating meat offered to, to idols, but there's other things that we may think we have the liberty to do, but we need to take into consideration or are we causing someone else to stumble. There's many things like that. So he's dealing with that. He has to deal with relationships between the rich and the poor members there. And today we're going to have communion, and it was showing up in the communion service and at the Lord's Supper that the rich were eating their food, getting drunk, and the poor people were being neglected. So they had cliques. They had divisions. They had all kinds of problems in a church that Paul started. And there's reasons, though, for those problems and the reason they became such big issues. In some way we can understand that is, I'd like to just give, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, I just want to give some background to Corinth, the city of Corinth that Paul came to, because it'll help us to understand, I think, why those problems were those problems for that church. So you can meet somebody and they act a certain way and you're just thinking, you know, that dude's weird. But if you knew their background, it might make a little more sense to you why they act the way they act. You know, it's like people in the South. Why are people in the South? When I moved down here from the North, I found people in the South were a lot more laid back. They, they were a lot more friendly. I'd have customers actually make me bean soup and cornbread for lunch. I'm like, man, they didn't do that at all up North. Well, why is that? If you understand why it is, why people are the way they are, it kind of helps you relate to them. So people in the South, in case you want to know, people in the South, it's a warmer climate. People tended to be outside more. They'd sit on their front porch more. People would be walking by. Come on up and sit on the porch. They were, it was more of an agricultural society or culture. 
So there was just more laid back, more time to talk versus up north. It's industry. It's cold up there. We don't sit on porches a lot up north, especially not in the wintertime. And it's industry. So time is money. You know, we're not watching crops grow. You know, it's like we got to get to that plant, get to work. Da, da, da. So I'm saying you just tend to be more time centered, more. I mean, that's the way I was. I was like, I need to get a blood transfusion when I move down here because I go to the paint store. I want my paint so I can get to the job and start making money because time is money. And in the paint store, they want to ask about mama and them. And I really didn't want to talk about mama and them. I just wanted to get to work. So let's try to see if we can understand Corinth a little bit. It's a seaport city. My drawing's terrible, okay? You say, that's not a good confession. Well, it's just the truth. So anyways, if I can do this, draw this at all, it's a seaport city. Okay, so what we have here is Corinth is like right here. This is mainland Greece. And then this is like a little island, sort of, that's connected by this little thing right there. It's called an isthmus. We'll call it isthmus. Not like Christmas. But anyways, Corinth would be right here. So this is a little four-mile stretch that it's located, and there's a seaport there. For those ships to come down this way to the southern part of Greece, it was very dangerous to sail there. So what they would do is they would sail in here. If the ship was small enough, the Romans had actually cut a road through there. It's a four-mile stretch, and they would put the ship on rollers, a small ship, and take it to the other side, and it would take off from there. It's a major trade route, okay? If the ship was too big, they'd just drop the goods off, load it on another ship, and have that ship go off from there. And also is a north-south major trade route connecting, this is a fairly large area, to northern Greece. So it's a major trade route. There's, there's a lot going on there. It's an, it's an important and a strategic, and it was a very prosperous city. Rome came in and invaded Corinth, invaded Greece in 146. And when the Roman army came in there, the military, they literally leveled the city. There was nothing there. And that basically lasted for a hundred years. Then Julius Caesar, right before he died, he decided he was going to rebuild Corinth, which is what he did. And he built it in 44 BC, 44 years before the Lord came and established it as a Roman colony. And so because of its location there, it's like the prosperity that was there before came back literally overnight, almost immediately. Paul is coming to the city, what we're reading here in Corinthians, about a hundred years later. And by then it had come back. It was the wealthiest city in Greece. It was a very wealthy place most prosperous, all right, and it had a major banking center. There was a lot of skilled workers and artisans that were producing goods that went out. And as one man said, here's the deal. One of these commentators, since money attracts people like dead meat attracts flies, Corinth quickly experienced a great influx of people from both east and west. Rome dominates their culture and their government and their people, their colonists, dominated the city. But the Greek culture, which Rome had pretty much assimilated a lot of Greek culture. So you have Greeks there, Greek culture, Romans, Jews, and basically people from all over the world. So it's a real metropolitan city. There's a, there a lot going on. There's a lot of people there. It had a population of 100,000, which is very big. And as always, with any big city, now you look at all the big cities, and they're built around water for the most part in the U.S. New York City, L.A., Detroit, those places like that. Money does what? Well, back then and even now, it brings in religion, but it also brings in sin, doesn't it? They claimed there was as many as 26 sacred places. Not all of them were temple, but places where they worshipped that were devoted to the gods. One massive hill overlooking the city, more or less a mountain, there was a temple to Aphrodite, and she is the goddess of love. And one historian, a Greek historian, claimed that at one time, he estimated, there were 1,000 temple prostitutes that operated out of that temple. And there came to be this slang word, immorality, prostitution, and all that was so rampant in Corinth. It was a very wicked city, a big city, just like our big cities are, that a loose woman was called a Corinthian girl. That was the slang term they would use. And also, the reputation for fornication was so bad that when a person committed fornication, it was known as being Corinthianized. Those are the, the terms that were used. They also had other temples. They had a temple to Asclepius, 
the god of healing, Isis and Poseidon, because they're near the ocean, the seafaring gods. They had those temples and many other temples to these gods. This is to help us understand this book too. So they idolized individualism. See if this sounds familiar. Individualism, equality, freedom, and they distrusted any sort of authority. I mean, that just sounds like modern America. We basically mirror Corinth. They also had on that isthmus, they had what's known as the Ismanian Games. They were very popular, second only to the Olympics. The Olympics were the number one sporting event, but Paul spent a lot of time there, and he always, he referred to these athletes in his writings, and that's probably why. He probably visited those games. They would have them every two years. They had a large theater that would hold 18,000 people, and this big other theater that would hold 3,000 where they would have art and music. So it's just got all this worldly entertainment. It's a place to go if you're a person of the world. Now the majority of the people that are in the church in Corinth, they weren't wealthy. They weren't of the wealthy class. They're just ordinary tradesmen and workmen. And we know that from chapter one. Well, look what it says, you know, what it says in verse 26. You see your calling brother, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. So there weren't many of them there, but there were some. But yet, kind of like in America, our poor people are basically middle class or rich compared to most of the rest of the world. And it would have been the same way in Corinth. That wealth was filtering down through enough to where when you get to chapter 16, Paul tells them, he says, as God prospers you, so they were prospering enough back then, that he says, take up a collection to send to the poor saints that live in Jerusalem. It's described as a middle-class church, which I would say that's probably what we are, more or less. We're more or less a middle-class church. I wouldn't say we have a lot of poor people here. But here's the other thing that we need to see that will, has a big effect on what Paul says. There were only a few wealthy members of that church, apparently, but they had a lot of influence, apparently, on things that were going on. Because Paul was criticized, hey, how come you're not taking money from us? like everybody else did, because that's what the philosophers and the teachers and the traveling salesmen, they would get money from people. Actually, what they had then, they were called patrons. That's the way things operated. They'd be wealthy people, and they would take on an individual, a family, or a group of people, and they'd take them on as their clients. What that would involve in, they would give them jobs, they'd give them land, they'd give them money, they'd give them legal protection. These people that would would come and become their clients, these patrons. And in return, these people had to give them services. They had to give them political support. And also, they kind of increased their public stature. That goes on in Shelbyville. That goes on everywhere still, where the rich do things like that. So one commentator kind of summed it up. He said this. He said, Paul's Corinth was at once the New York, the Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. He says, and although they were the Christian church in Corinth, too much of Corinth was yet in them. He's talking about the church in Corinth, emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. This is what 1 Corinthians attempts to do. So it's Paul's radical surgery to deal with these problems, because I do think that's the whole problem behind the book of Corinthians. They let their culture infiltrate their church and what they were doing, how they were thinking, their, even their attitudes towards Paul the Apostle. He said, I'm your father. I founded you all. He had a real concern and care for them. And gifts manifested through him. And I think a lot of ways that's what's happened to us. We've let the world, the world around us and our culture influence us in ways that we don't even realize a lot of times. We just don't even realize it. If you don't mind, I want to just see first, and this is another briefly, on how the church got started. So if you would turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18 is where Paul founds the church in Corinth. It's his second missionary journey that he's on. That's when Corinth begins. Before he gets to Corinth, though, he traveled through the upper part of Greece He'd been beaten in Philippi. You remember that's Acts 16. He'd been beaten so bad they put him down in the jail with the jailer, the Philippian jailer. He got beat real bad there. And then he moved on from there to Thessalonica. The mobs chase him out of Thessalonica. And then he has to go to Berea. When he gets to Berea, the Jews from Thessalonica come down there. He gets chased away again. He's threatened all the time. Physical harm coming his way. 
So he gets out of there, the brothers whisk him away, so to speak, and then he comes to Greece, he gets in the upper part of Greece. So the first thing he does is he encounters in Acts 17, the philosophers that are in Athens, preaches that famous sermon that we all know on Mars Hill. And then he goes the 65 miles to Corinth. So it's not that far away. I've been to both places. He goes from Athens and then he goes to Corinth. And that's where we pick up here in Acts 18, verse 1. And it says this, let's read. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. And so because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation they were tent makers, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names and your own law, look to yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Paul still remained a good while, and when he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. So it's interesting, I think, that the Lord had to appear to Paul. Paul the Apostle, he'd already given him the commission to go to the Gentiles, and this was Paul's manner. He would usually go to big cities. He went to Corinth on purpose, because where better to spread the gospel? How better would the gospel be spread than through this trade route and the different people he would meet? But that's funny. The Lord had to appear to him and encourage him to stay. And one thing we see about that is Paul was a man, wasn't he? I mean, he had a calling, he'd had visions, he'd have all of that, but I'm saying he still is a man. He had to overcome fear. He had never been to a city like Corinth because Corinth was no small little backwater town. It was the third largest city in the world at that time. Rome and Alexandria would have been one and two. Corinth would have been number three. 100,000 people, that is a big city for back then. That is really big. And that would have been intimidating. Paul when he tells the Corinthians, he wasn't kidding when he said them in chapter 2, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. I guarantee you he was intimidated by that place to where the Lord had to appear to him and say, no harm is going to come to you. Because how many times would you want to get beaten? I mean, that has to get old after a while, doesn't it? No matter how much grace you have is the way it would be. So let's look at the letter itself. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 1. Now, in case you didn't know, this isn't the first letter that has ever been written. It's called 1 Corinthians, but it really isn't the first letter that was written to the Corinthians. In chapter 5, 9, he tells them, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. So he had already written another letter to him, and he has to deal with that again because apparently they misunderstood him and he was saying, no, I didn't mean you can't be around any fornicators or you'd have to go out of the world, especially out of Corinth. He said, no, what I meant was, we'll get to that later, but he's saying what I meant was sexually immoral people are fornicators in the church. So, but he'd already written a letter and he's having to correct it with this letter. 
and also he'd heard reports of problems. So if you look just, if you're in chapter 1, just look down at verse 11. Look what it says there. He says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions or divisions among you. So he'd heard there's problems. That's another reason why he's writing this letter. And then the church itself, we won't look at it, but if you, in chapter 7, verse 1, they apparently had written to him and had questions. And he's, at that point in chapter 7, he says, now concerning the letter you'd written, he starts answering the different questions they had written him. So there's three different things going on here for why he's writing this letter, what's occasioned this letter. Looking at this at 1-1, it says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Let me ask you a question. How do we think people come into a ministry office, whether it's apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher? How does someone come into that office, but especially an apostle? Is it something that is a self-appointed gift that you do, something you do on your own? So Paul didn't look at it that way. He didn't appoint himself as the apostle. That's what he's telling us. And what he's saying here is, through this, he's saying, I was minding my own business. I was killing and imprisoning Christians. I was just minding my own business, doing my thing, <laughs> killing and imprisoning Christians. And suddenly, I'm called to be an apostle. Because this light appears, knocks me down to the ground, <laughs> and I hear this invitation. That's what the word called means, called to be an apostle. It literally <laughs> means to be invited as a dinner guest. That's what happened. What happened to him? He's knocked off that horse and he hears the Lord speak to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. So it wasn't his idea, was it? He's minding his own business. The light appears, knocks him to the ground, and Jesus says, I will make you a minister and a witness, and I'm going to reveal things to you that you're going to reveal to other people. Paul, it wasn't even a volunteer thing, was it? He didn't volunteer. He was divinely called. That's what he's saying. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. But not only that, he adds, through the will of God, he's responding to God's will. And why does he have to say that? I've already told you, because the church at Corinth, they challenge his authority. He's constantly having to do things that he says, I shouldn't have to do this. But basically, because he's not like these other philosophers and orators, he's not eloquent, they have no respect for him. You can imagine that. That's just hard for me to imagine how you wouldn't have respect for the Apostle Paul. But they didn't. And so he's telling them right here at the beginning of this letter, I didn't ask for this job. It wasn't my idea. The Lord called me, and not only that, the reason I'm doing it is because it's his will that I'm doing. So what does that do for Paul? One thing, he knows he didn't call himself. It's a humiliating thing that God has put him in this office. He says that in other places, doesn't he? I'm the least of all the saints, and yet God's called me to be an apostle. But it also gives him boldness, doesn't it? Because you know he's not doing his will, but the Lord's will. And I read this little story about this kid. He tells his mom, he says, you know, I think I'll be a preacher when I grow up. And she tells him, she says, well, that's a wonderful calling. She said, why do you want to be a preacher? And he says, well, I'll tell you what. He goes, I figured I'm going to have to go to church all my life anyways. And it's harder for me to sit than to stand up and holler. <laughs> and that's the way some people, I think, the reason they want to preach, because they want to be heard. They want to be seen. They'd rather stand up and give their opinions and have to sit there and listen to somebody else's. <laughs> Believe me, you don't want to do that. <laughs> it's not worth it. Just take my, take my word for that. Uh, Paul wasn't that way, was he? He wasn't that way. He said he was called and it was God's purpose, not his. So that's who's writing this letter. You know, they sign their letters at the beginning rather than the end like we do. So we move on to verse 2. And look how he addresses the church there. He says it's to the church of God in Corinth. Now this is the third, fourth letter he's written. He's written two to Thessalonians and one to the Galatians by this time. But he gives a different address. This is a, a change from the way he addressed the Thessalonians. You don't have to look at it, but in 
1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he addresses them to the church of the Thessalonians that are in God. But here with the Corinthians, he tells them, he says, to the church of God in Corinth. And what's significant about that? He's letting them know that this is God's church. In other words, the church belongs to God. He tells them in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, you are God's field, you are God's building. That's what the church is. So what he's telling them is, this isn't Paul's church, this isn't Apollo's church, this isn't their church, it's God's church. And when you look at a church that way, it should give you a completely different attitude, shouldn't it? If it really is a church that he's assembled, and that's what church is is an ecclesia. It's an assembly, called out ones. It's not a building. So they had assemblies or ecclesias or churches that had nothing to do with religion. You have one, I believe it's Acts 19. Just a local gathering. But here it's a local gathering of God's people. But primarily the New Testament does not talk about the universal church. We had a lot of that trying to creep in here, like the universal church. So I can just go to any church at any time. It doesn't matter. It's, it's just all one big happy church. The emphasis is on a local assembly, a local gathering of people. Like I told somebody, you can't have a pastor over an entire community of all these. How does that work? How do you do church discipline then? You got people here. If somebody needs to be disciplined, we can gather together here, right, and do church discipline. That's just kind of common sense, isn't it? So the universal church idea is not biblical, not New Testament. There is a couple places where it alludes to the universal church, but primarily the emphasis is on a local assembly, a local assembly that you can see. So he goes on to tell these people that they're called out of the world to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And he says to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So what does sanctified mean? What does sanctified mean? You're like, well, it means to be holy. No, it doesn't mean to be holy. Literally, it means to be set apart. The utensils that were used in the temple were sanctified. They were set apart strictly for the use of God. Sanctification in the New Testament does not refer to growth in holiness. In other words, a process. It's generally, almost always, used to mean to be consecrated or set apart like the utensils set apart taken aside set apart for one use and it's something that has already happened almost every case it's a past tense so it's happened to anyone that's a christian it's not a special designation for special christians that have attained this almost impossible degree of spirituality you know (laughs) I grew up a Catholic, and you got St. Paul, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Patrick, St. Christopher, even though he's no longer a saint. You know why? They're not sure he ever lived. So Saint, your St. Christopher medal, we used to hang those from our visor. That was to protect you in traveling. Or jolly old St. Nicholas. There's another saint. But Paul writes to the, all the Christians, all of them he's writing to here in Corinth, the assembly. He's saying they're all saints, called to be saints. And the to be is not there. there it's called saints so the point is if you're a christian you're a saint well let me say this i'll sleep on that part that's fine but this part you need to listen to okay do we really understand what it means to say we are set apart for god's use because that sounds sterile to me we're not utensils in the temple are we we're not like that when a man or a woman gets married what happens they consecrate themselves to each other so they separate themselves from all other mates, don't they? And, you know, they used to say this line in marriage ceremonies, forsaking all others and cleaving only unto thee. So that consecration that takes place in a marriage, it's absolute, it's permanent, it's pure, it's irreversible. It's a full devotion, isn't it? If it's properly done, now divorce is rampant in America, but if it's really done in God's eyes, that's the way it would be. And let me ask you, is that pure devotion, is it an unattached devotion? I sure would hope not, because there should be in that devotion, in that consecration, in that sanctification, there should be deep love should be involved in that, shouldn't it? Communication, 
affection, desire, and love. That's what takes place when two people consecrate themselves to each other. So when Paul writes in verse 2, we are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Remember, we made a big deal about wherever you see in Christ Jesus, he's talking about our union with Christ, and he's bringing the two together, our union with Christ and our consecration to him. So we're united to him in a bond that's like a marriage bond that calls for our loving, full devotion. So when he's saying that's everybody in here, that's not for somebody that's exceptional. To be sanctified means we are lovingly devoted only to the Lord. That's what it's telling us, separated from sin. If you would, turn to Ephesians 5, and you'll see where Paul even brings it together there. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. And Paul writes Ephesians 5, 25, he says, Husbands, love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Why? Verse 26, that he might, there's the word, sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish so here's what we need to see our lord jesus christ loved us so much that he gave his life's blood so that we could be sanctified consecrated devoted to him I mean, we've got to realize what that's really saying. He did all of that, what he did on the cross, so we could be separated from sin and devoted to him. In John 17, 19, it says, For their sakes, Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So he's saying, I devote myself, I consecrate myself to the cross is what he's talking about so that we could be devoted to him and our union with him could take place. That marriage union could take place. So Sinclair Ferguson, I like this guy, he said this, he said, the idea of sanctification that is used in the Old and New Testaments carries the idea of to withhold from ordinary use, treated with special care. In other words, he says, we are reserved for God. And he gives this illustration. He says, you go into a restaurant, and if it has a sign on the chair or on a table that it's reserved, no matter how bad you want to sit there or how long you've had to wait, you can't sit there. It's reserved for special use, right? Being kept for someone else. And he went on to say this. He says, this is what sanctification means. God has put his reserve sign on something temple vessels for example or on someone who thereby becomes a saint a person reserved for the lord he marks us out for his personal possession and use we belong to him and to nobody else not even to ourselves we become devoted to god and i think we need to let that sink in what that's saying let me read that again. He said, this is what sanctification means. God has put his reserve sign on something, temple vessels, for example, or on someone who thereby becomes a saint, a person reserved for the Lord. He marks us out for his personal possession and use. We belong to him and to nobody else, not even to ourselves. We become devoted to God. Charles Spurgeon, he had a deacon, a senior deacon, an old man, older man in his church that died. And he said one of his favorite expressions this guy had, he would repeat it to Spurgeon all the time, was this. He would say, Lord Jesus, we are one with thee. We feel that we have a living, loving, lasting union with thee. And Spurgeon said this after he spoke at that man's funerals. He says, those words have stuck by me, and ever since he is gone, I have found myself repeating them to myself involuntarily. A living, loving, lasting union. And Spurgeon said, he owed everything to that. And he said, and so also do we. And that's what we have to realize. Well, that's what it means to be a Christian. To have a living loving, lasting union with our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means. So I look at what Paul is saying here back in 
1 Corinthians 1, I look at it as a, as a positive thing. He's caused us to be sanctified or devoted to him. But I'm looking at that as that is such a privilege that he's given us. So we're blessed to be set apart by him through his blood for his love. I mean, that's what it's saying. Set apart from sin. sin. And as Spurgeon's friend said, a life united to him. And what we didn't have before, he's given us so that union could take place. We now have an ability, because no sinner does. No sinner has an ability to love and adore God. They don't. That only can be produced by the new birth. But that's what he's done for us. And it happens at the new birth. When you're saved, you are sanctified then, devoted to the Lord, able to freely love and adore him. But do we? I'm saying we need to look at that as that's a privilege. We don't have to be afraid of him anymore. That should be an honor and a privilege that we see. That's what God's been speaking to me about and looking at this. So we have to consider that. Are we devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ? And we have to ask ourselves, is he our all? And the way you'll know that is, are we looking forward to his return? Are you really looking forward to his return? Paul was. For me to live in Christ and to die is gain. He wasn't worried about dying. For him, that was going to be gain. He's going to come face to face with the one he was devoted to and had a relationship with. Because he's a person. Understand the Lord Jesus Christ is a person we can be devoted to like any other person. Now, he's not any other person, but he is a person. Here's the problem with the Corinthians. This is their problem is Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ was not the center of their lives. And whenever your spiritual life becomes a mess, that's the problem. And if you look, there are nine times, once you see it, in these first nine verses, there are nine times when Paul gives the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nine times talks about God and the Lord Jesus Christ because he wants to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ because that was their problem. He wasn't the center of their lives. So look at it. Let's look through there real quick. Look in verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, to the church of God, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God, verse 4, always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. And verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who also he will confirm you in the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he is magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's who we need to magnify in our life and in our walk. He needs to be the center of our everything. That's what our sanctification is all about. To bring us into devotion to him. He goes on here in verses 3 and 4. He talks about the grace of God that's been given to the Corinthians. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you by Christ Jesus. And that is how it comes to us. It's only through Him and what He's done. We owe Him everything. The grace of God comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything He's given us is free. Everything by grace is undeserved and it all comes from the Lord Jesus. That's what he's trying to get through here. And he goes on to say this grace is not just some kind of invisible feeling. He's saying it was seen by the gifts that are manifested in the church. Look what he says in verse 5. So the grace which was given you by Christ Jesus, verse 5, that you were enriched in him in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that word for grace and the word for gift are the same terms. So the Greek word for grace is k 
charis. And the Greek word for gift is charisma or charismata. That's what it means. That's where we get the term we're charismatics because we are people that believe in quote-unquote grace gifts, gifts that are given, spiritual gifts he's talking about, supernatural spiritual gifts given to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is telling the Corinthians, one way that you can know that the grace of God is in your midst is by the fact that God in his graciousness is manifesting these gifts there. Now he brings up utterance and knowledge, but he goes on and says, you're back behind in no gift. And that's a sign that the grace of God is in the midst of a group of people because he's graciously manifesting his Holy Spirit through that. It's a sign of his grace. And, you know, it's amazing that for all of their problems, he has to tell them they come behind in no gift. Divisions, problems, fornication and all that. But the Lord was pouring, his grace was still with them. Paul recognizes that, doesn't he? He says, you come behind in no gift. Can we say we come behind in no gift? Honestly, we're spirit-filled church. So I think what we need to have, because he says <laughs> that's the way he wants to bless us. So I believe that the gifts, we don't see them operate because it's back to verse 2 that we just talked about, that consecration, that devotion. I believe if we sought the Lord and we're praying and seeking Him like we should, I think he would. He wants to manifest those gifts. Because look what it says in verse 5. That's the way he blesses them. He says that you were enriched in him by everything in all utterance and in all knowledge. That enriched means to make rich or to richly furnish. You go into somebody's house that's rich and you see all their fancy furniture and all that and you're like, wow, that person's rich because they have rich furnishing there. And God's saying to his spiritual house, the way you'll know that it is truly rich and has been blessed by God is the gifts will be manifesting. That's the way we can know that. And that's a sign of his grace, spiritual riches. All I'm saying is I want to encourage everybody. We're spirit filled. If you're here, you should have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's, if you don't have it, we can pray for you, tell you how you can get it. Get him. It's not an it. Get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the evidence of speaking in tongues, and then take time to pray in the Spirit before you come or during the week that God would use me, of all people, or you. Use somebody to manifest His gifts and it be the Lord. You've got to be sensitive to that. But we would see gifts operate more in, when, as our church when we were in the other building, I thought, at times. And that's kind of been downplayed, but I just think Paul didn't downplay it. And he's saying those gifts should be operating here. It's a sign of God's blessing. It's a sign of God giving you riches until the day that the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. So churches that say the gifts aren't for today or they ceased back then, Paul didn't say that. He's telling us right there in verse 1 they should be going on until the Lord comes back. So we need to have his gifts move, not just so people can see us or whatever, but that's his way of blessing others through us, isn't it? You know, I know there's times, I've had times when God moves on you and you can tell he's giving you something to say, but out of fear or I don't do that or what will people think or I might mess up, you hold back. But we have to have an attitude of God's given me something to share with the church and I want to bless the church. I'm, I'm just going to have to die out to my feelings and my fears and just go on and step out. Amen. Amen. And more people stepping out and it won't be such an uncommon thing and nobody will think anything and we'll all be blessed. He makes a statement here in verse 8 that I think in a lot of ways seems beyond our reach. Look what he says. He, Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when it says there he's going to confirm us blameless, that is a promise that he'll do that in the day of judgment. And to be blameless means to be unreproachable, unaccused, that nothing can be laid to your account, that you have a conscience. Paul says, I strive to have a conscience that is void of offense towards God and man. And we should be able to have that. That's the way we should be walking. And that's what he says he'll give us. And how's that going to happen? Paul doesn't have any confidence in the Corinthians because he has to get on them. He says, you guys act like carnal men, like worldly men. They're unstable. They seem like they're prone to smooth talkers and temptation. So who is it that he's saying is going to make them blameless? It says right there in verse 8, Jesus Christ, 
at the end of verse 7, who also will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that is going to confirm, establish, make a person firm in their commitment. And he pledges himself to make us faithful disciples. If we're his, he does. Jesus pledges to make us faithful disciples. Do we believe that? To the end. And that's what he did for Peter. He told Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you. Now, what's interesting is, if you read that in the Greek, when he says Satan has asked for you, that's a plural. He's saying Satan, and he did. He sifted all of them, didn't he? Peter just became like the head person, the spokesman for the group. But Jesus said, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. He says, but I have prayed for you, and he goes back to the singular and then talking to Peter, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, because he got away from him, he says, strengthen your brethren. And I'm saying, thank God that the Lord Jesus Christ, we have testimonies, we had one today. You know, sometimes we think, how am I still here? How am I still hearing the voice of God? How am I still wanting to follow him? How am I still wanting to hear a message of holiness and wanting to hear a message of trusting God? And still wanting to hear his word, if that's you. Why is that? It's because Jesus is praying. It's not because we're so strong or we're so special or all. No, it's because he is praying for us that our faith fails not. Because I'm saying otherwise, he says to Peter, Satan will sift you. If the Lord's not praying for us, interceding on our behalf, that sift you, that word in our vernacular would mean to pick you apart. That's what the devil would do to us if we were left on our own. He'd pick us apart. <laughs> Praise God. The Lord's praying for us, right? And he's the one who establishes. Jude 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Not a word in there about us keeping ourselves. There's other places that will say that, but it's through him. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless or blameless, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. God our Savior is the one who will keep us and bring us before his presence with exceeding joy he says. And it says to him be the wisdom because he's the only one smart enough to keep us and to orchestrate all the circumstances in our lives that when we start to stray this brother comes along, this sister says a word, you hear a message, or whatever. God the Holy Spirit somehow deals with you, and God orchestrates all that in his people's lives that they'll make it to the end. That's the promise that he gives us. Do we believe God really wants us to make it? He does. He's not up there hoping somebody's going to fall away or wanting anybody to fall away. He wants us to make it. We taught on this, Philippians 1, 6, being confident, Paul said, of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. So let me ask you, do you believe the Lord Jesus Christ is somebody that you can commit the eternal welfare of your soul to and not worry about that he won't? He will. He is. God's faithful. Second Timothy, Paul says, For I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able, he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Well, we just got to make that commitment, don't we? Put ourselves in his hands. So look what it says in verse 9. I think it's the three most encouraging words in the Bible. What does it say at the beginning of verse 9? God is faithful. They've been called by God, the Corinthians, to be sanctified, consecrated, told God will establish them blameless until the end. And so their confidence has to be in who? It has to be in God. If you would turn over to 1 Thessalonians 5, and look what it says in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. There's that word again. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless, what we've just been talking about, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And look at verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Has God called you? 
You desire to stand before him without shame or guilt. So he's pledged by his character that he will do it. He's saying God is faithful. He's somebody reliable. He's somebody we can trust. He's somebody that is trustworthy. I'm just going to close by, I want to just quote several verses here in the New Testament that tell us that God is faithful. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we sing this song, thanks to Dave, and it says this, No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul says that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. So what he's saying is the one who made the promise is reliable. So hold on. And the reason to hold on is because God is the one who made the promise. And that's what Sarah did. You go on to read in Hebrews 11, 11, and it says, By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age. Why? Because she judged him faithful who had promised. Judged him, considered, reasoned in her mind. She didn't reason in her mind that the promise was faithful because the promise seemed crazy to her. She laughed about it. Who in the world, a 90-some-year-old woman going to have a baby? She didn't judge the promise faithful. What does it say? It says she judged or reasoned or considered him faithful. God to be faithful. She thought about him, and she said, me and my old man here, Abraham, we've been walking with him all these years, clear from way back when, and made this big, long journey, and he's been faithful to us all along the way. So, I mean, he has proven to be trustworthy, reliable, all of these years, I can put my trust in him even though he's telling me something that's crazy. Because isn't that what God asks us to believe a lot of times? Things that seem crazy. The world says, you're done, you're over with. And God says, no, I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now, you're not crazy. 1 Corinthians 1.9, back in there, that's what it says. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the entire greeting, this whole first nine verses that we looked at here is centered on one thing. It's not centered on the Corinthians, is it? It's not centered on those people. It's centered on the grace of God that has come to them through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's telling them, hey, you guys are operating in the gifts. Praise God for that because he's going to have to correct them later on. They're getting puffed up in pride. They're not doing it in love. But he says, you're operating in the gifts. And he's saying, he's not saying that's not the Lord. He's just saying, praise God, look at the source of those gifts. The Lord Jesus Christ. Get boastful about him and not yourselves. And that's what he's telling us. Praise God for his gifts. Remember the source. And everything is centered in his son. So we have been called into fellowship with him, haven't we? Devotion to him, sanctified to him. And it says when that's the case, he says he will confirm you, establish you blameless to the end because God is faithful. Amen. 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 Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the great privilege that you've given us at a cost that was so great, Lord, the, the, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that has enabled us, Lord, to be freed from sin and to be consecrated and devoted to you, Lord, and that we can be devoted to you, Lord, now in love and adoration. You're devoted to us, and we thank you, Lord, for that union that's taken place here. And we thank you also, Lord, for your faithfulness that you're watching over us, that you'll keep us in your hand, and that in the end, Lord, we will be holy and blameless in your sight with exceeding joy in your presence. And I thank you that you'll do that work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.